it's hot out today, and I really don't feel like walking. You think we could hitchhike? It's not that far, and we look pretty cute today. I'm sure someone will pick us up. I know girls are turning up dead, but they probably took a ride with someone scary. You have to be careful. You can't just get in the car with any old creep. And besides, there are two of us. Safety in numbers, right? It's scary, though. Can you imagine? You hitch for a while in the heat of the day, like we are, and finally you get a ride. Some guy picks you up and you want to be nice, right? Maybe you even flirt a little. You think everything is fine and dandy, and then out of nowhere, boom, you're toast. You think they knew before it happened that they were in for it? I don't even want to think about it. I read somewhere that he cuts their heads off and keeps them. What do you think he did with the heads? Oh, don't be vulgar. What kind of monster does that with severed heads? It's one thing to kill someone, but quite another to do that. Honestly. I think we'll be fine. It was probably just a freak thing, some maniac that blew through town. If you had killed a couple of girls, you wouldn't just hang around and wait to get caught, would you? No, you would hightail it out of here and move on to the next place. Maybe lay low somewhere for a little while. There's no way he's still lurking around the streets. Next, you're going to tell me he's driving around with heads in the trunk. <gasps> Look, we got one. Come on. Oh, that's a big guy. Say, have you ever seen a man that tall? Oh, would you relax? He's wearing glasses and a collared shirt. What kind of murderer goes around wearing glasses and a collared shirt? Here, I'll ask him. Hey, mister, you're not that guy who murders college girls, are you? There, are you satisfied? Oh, come on. What's the worst that could happen? Get in. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. wouldn't because we would never hitchhike. No, because serial killers wear glasses and button-up shirts. This one does. Yeah. He looks very friendly, but enormous. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Not that I have anything against people who are enormous. No, or wear glasses and button-up shirts. Because that sounds nice. Yeah, that's just a professional. Yeah. <laughs> that guy just cares about his appearance. For sure. And killing people. Oh, man. <laughs> Hey, Leslie. Hey, Hallie. Hey, Beans. Ooh, we have a big one today. The most important serial killer that lots of people have never heard of. <laughs> until now, or until Mindhunter, I guess. But, like, we're more important. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we have finally come to the serial killer who serves as a touchstone to so many other cases. 
one that I have actually mentioned quite a few times in the past. The person who was actually responsible for the incredibly famous misquoted Patrick Bateman line in American Psycho, quote, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And then another character says, what does the other part think? And Patrick Bateman says, what her head would look like on a stick. That is not an Ed Gein quote, and they say it is in the movie. It's not. It was taken directly from the interviews the FBI held with Edmund Kemper. Mm. A terrifying and hyper-intelligent murderer without whom forensic psychology and the criminal justice system in this country would never be the same. Ed did horrific things, but he is also the only reason anyone has any understanding of the mind of a serial killer. And he offered up all of that information willingly. There are a lot of things you can offer up completely free of charge that are life-changing for the people around you. Kind of like, I don't know, a five-star rating and or a friendly review on (laughs) Apple Podcasts? Yeah, that would definitely be perfect. Right? That would mean the world to us and make all the difference in moving this podcast forward. We're just as important as that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And if you don't mind spending just a little money and want even more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, then you can head on over to our Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you'll get access to our extra monthly mini-sodes, patrons-only podcast 30-minute horror movies, which I think is coming back this month. It took a little hiatus last month, but we're coming back strong. You also get discounts in our merch store, a special little gift from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that seems to be a little much for you, you can just share anything we share to your social media feeds. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your pets, tell your neighbor's pets. And then your friends can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Especially if you have like bulldogs, because I love bulldogs. And it would be cool if we had a legion of bulldogs that were our fans. Yeah. (laughs) I would make shirts for the bulldogs. Like, would they fit the Bulldogs, or are the Bulldogs on the shirts? No, they would fit the Bulldogs. Okay, this is an important distinction. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's our logo on a dog shirt, but only for Bulldogs. Yes. Like, it will not fit another kind of dog. Right. Perfect. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Also, if you have not gotten your VIF pass for our live show, there are only a couple left. So hurry up and get yours before they're gone. And if you want to come, but... Don't need the VIF treatment. General admission will be free at the door. Just buy some delicious Tyndall Road beers while you listen. And you might have to stand. (laughs) I mean, we're very in demand. Yes. Our theme for the evening, which we are going to reveal tonight, Mm. fun surprise, is Twist and Shout. (gasps) Yes, we will be delivering two terrifying tales with endings so shocking, M. Night Shyamalan himself will have to pick his jaw up off the floor. Oh, my goodness. That's right. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm really excited for that night. I think it's going to be so much fun. Um, Both of our husbands are playing music. Yeah. And we would be dead husbands. (laughs) (laughs) We would be dead husband band. Yeah. (laughs) That's what they like to be called, right? Yes. Uh Yep. Um, Yeah, we're going to have delicious beers. We're going to tell fun stories. We're going to all see each other's faces live and in person. It's going to be so great. And I hope that you all will be there, even though some of you live far away and can't. But we're going to come to you one day. I feel it coming. Yes, one day. Especially California. We're coming for you guys soon. Mm -hmm. I know it. So, Leslie, do you have anything else to add before we start? 
No. The bulldog shirts covered it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we talked about the bulldog shirts, so that was that. Check and mate. Yeah, we're okay. good. <laughs> All right, then. On with the show. On April 25th, 1973, the Santa Cruz County, California Police Department received a strange phone call. It came from a thousand miles away in Pueblo, Colorado, but the voice was familiar. The voice told the officer that he had just murdered his mother and her best friend in the home he and his mother had shared at 609 Ord Street in Aptos, California. The officer laughed this off, and he told the voice on the other end of the phone to relax and stop fooling around. The officer surmised that this voice belonged to a man they all called Big Ed, a tall, lumbering gent who drank with a group of off-duty cops at a local bar. Ed had tried to become a police officer, but got rejected due to his height. So they all understood why he might want to hang around them all the time. He's kind of like a fan. Big Ed was jovial and smart and made them laugh and occasionally bought a round or two. So they liked him. This must be a weird joke, but the officer thought perhaps Big Ed had simply tied one on and was trying to get a rise out of him. But two hours later, the phone in the police station rang again. The same voice told the same officer the same story. And when he didn't want to listen, Big Ed patiently asked to speak to an officer he was more friendly with, a man he knew personally. The original officer passed off the phone and watched his colleague have a brief and startling conversation before hanging up the phone and dialing the Pueblo, Colorado Police Department. He told them that a six-foot-nine man with glasses, dark hair, and a mustache would be waiting for them at a phone booth. This man had murdered two women, and they should bring him into their jail to await confirmation before making arrangements to have him sent back to Santa Cruz. The man would not be resisting arrest. They should take a statement from him as soon as possible. And that man's name was Edmund Kemper. And as far as confessions go, this was only the beginning. Ooh. Yeah, he turned himself in, which is like— So he was in Colorado? Yeah. But he's from California? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll get there. Okay. Don't worry. So I frequently get asked— Who my favorite serial killer is. Do you get this question, too, because of what we do? Nobody thinks I know. (laughs) They just ask me. Yeah, they're like, Leslie clearly doesn't know anything. (laughs) They're like, Leslie, what's your favorite Olsen twins movie? Oh, oh, man. We're going to be stuck on that. We don't have time for it tonight. Do you have one? I don't like favorites, so I won't stress you out with that. It's going to be hard. We'll get back to it. I was going to say, at some point, if it comes to you, just let us know. I'm like like, ranking them right now. Well, now everybody listening is like, oh, I want to know what is her favorite. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, we'll we'll move on for now. Holly, it in your head. Maybe we'll toast it. Maybe it'll be part of our (laughs) toasting today. (laughs) Well, people ask me who my favorite serial killer is, and that's kind of a loaded question because to have a favorite something, you have to like that thing. And I don't like serial killers. I don't want to, like, hang out with them. I don't think they're great. I'm not going to, I don't know, tattoo their bite mark on my leg. I'm not that girl. I am fascinated by them, and I think all of us are to some extent, I have always had a dark interest in the savage ends of humanity and what it takes for the human brain to override all empathy codes put in place for its own preservation so that it can perform vile and unthinkable acts. What is the disconnect? What kind of person does this happen to? Can this happen to anyone? Are serial killers born or made? All of this has always captured my attention, and I feel like 
all of us have this in common. Mm -hmm. And so I've spent a lifetime researching the hell out of them. I'm sure you can say some version of the same thing. I mean, we've yeah. watched the same documentaries. We've talked about absolutely a lot of cases not on air. So, surprise, we're always like this. <laughs> <laughs> Even when the mics aren't on, we're still doing this. <laughs> but um, with all of that said, they all kind of fascinate me on a certain level, but none so much as Ed Kemper. And I think that's because Ed was not only incredibly cooperative, but also— and this may get to some of you, and you might look at me weird, but I think I would like him. Mm. Now, I'm going to live with that statement being attached to me forever now. But also, I'm going to explain it. Ed Kemper is a man with an extremely followable story. You can get from point A to point B, and he will explain to you in detail why he did what he did. There are no excuses for it, but you can see why. He is unbelievably smart, and he knew when it had become time to take himself off the streets. And then he worked with the FBI to develop the criminal profiling system they still use today. Ed knows he's a monster. He has made no bones about it. He asked to be, he asked for the death sentence and to be killed by torture. Mm. I mean, of course, no, no justice system was like, yes, that's good. We will torture you to death. <laughs> oh, good. But he did say it. Do I have some kind of delusion that deep down he is good? No, not at all. Is he clever though? Oh, yes. There are a lot of serial killers that have been described as charming. Ted Bundy could charm the pants off anyone who caught his eye. But there are also a ton of people who recognize that he was a beady-eyed creep. They just happen to be women, and pff, who cares about those? <laughs> Nobody at that point in time, nope. that's for sure. The same can be said of Jeffrey Dahmer. He had no problem picking up men in a bar, but there were a great many years where he was simply known as a super strange drunk kid. We can say it about Dennis Nilsson, too. Dennis had tons of dates, but also there were people who knew that he liked a little strangle now and then. Mm, yeah. I mean, Ted Bundy was an obvious sociopath when talking to police, and Jeff was, well, he never was unstrange. But this isn't the case with Ed Kemper. He's so transparent in some places and opaque in others. If you ask anyone he knew outside of his family at the time of his murders— and this includes more than a few police officers and psychiatrists, they would tell you that Ed was a friendly and intelligent, affable guy who couldn't harm a fly. I mean, it's documented from psychiatrists. He wasn't really popular with the ladies, but he also didn't pretend to be. And he didn't, like, successfully date on the low. Only a psychological genius could murder his first two victims at just 15, be convicted of the crimes, put away for them, and then declared sane and safe just six years later by two medical doctors and a host of judges and lawyers, only to simply go back to murdering just a few short years later. But that's exactly what Ed Kemper did. So if we're going to explore this beast of a case, we have to start at Ed's beginning because it goes all the way back. Wow. Edmund Emil Kemper III, a third, was born on December 18, 1948, in Burbank, California, to parents Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. And oh boy, are we going to hear a lot about Clarnell later. You don't hear about a lot of Clarnells anymore. No. Not a popular name. No. Would you call her Nellie, maybe? Clar yeah. Clar? Yeah, Nellie would yeah, be yeah. cute, but does she deserve a cute name? No, she doesn't. She's okay. fucking awful. <laughs> But before we get to his parents, Leslie, why don't you give us a little information about 1948? 
Okay. Let's see when we are and get a clear picture of the world around us. Nice. So, in 1948, we are in post-war America, so there's still some rationing from the government and within family homes. The average yearly income was $2,960. Yearly? Yearly. Oh. The federal minimum wage was 60 cents. Oof. Average cost of a new house was only $7,500, though, so, which is actually, I think, Average-wise, that works out better than it does today because I think that's only like two and a half times your salary for the year, whereas like now it's like four to five times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. Super crazy. In fashion, Mm -mm. Christian Dior debuted his new line in Paris in 1947, and the next year, with fabric rationing being lifted, his trends hit the American streets. Women's clothing would have that fitted, cinched-in waist look to accentuate the feminine figure. Mm. And men and children would be wearing like a more sporty, casual American look. Mm. So that's when that would start. Doris Day, Ella Fitzgerald, Frankie Lane, Tommy Dorsey, the Mills Brothers, Nat King Cole, and Bing Crosby were the popular musicians. I love this era. I love a fit and flare dress. I love that music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Formed in 1948, the Arlington Ladies are a group of volunteers who attend funeral services at Arlington National Cemetery to ensure that no soldier, sailor, airman, or coast guardsman is buried alone. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, they're they're still active to this day, and they now have an Arlington gentleman, too. Oh, that's good. Mm Mm-hmm. Highway Gothic is a standard set of fonts specifically designed in 1948 to maximize legibility at a distance and high speed and are used on highway signs around the world. So that's when that started. That's interesting. I didn't know that was the name of it. Highway Gothic. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lithium was used in Beverage 7-Up until 1948. Wait, lithium was in 7-Up? Yep. Boy. That's a happy soda. (laughs) Oh, no. Almost all chickens eaten today come from the winner of the 1948 Chicken of Tomorrow contest, (laughs) whose genetics now dominate poultry farms worldwide. You can't tell me that with drink in my mouth. The Chicken of Tomorrow. (laughs) It's so, like, spacey. chicken. (laughs) Did you have chicken for dinner tonight? That's a descendant of space chicken. Yes, it is. (laughs) The chicken of tomorrow. Civil space chicken. You never know. You don't know. It could be. The Ford F-Series truck was introduced, so that was like the big car then. That's still still a thing. Yeah. And last, but simply not least, Cheetos and Scrabble made their debut. Two great tastes that do not go great together. No, because your hands are like always cheesy and then you have Scrabble. (laughs) Can't be touching the Scrabble tiles with Cheeto hands. I mean, I guess you could, but... You could, but, like... Nobody would want to play with you. No, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) No Cheeto Scrabble tournaments. (laughs) Get your life together. Chicken of Tomorrow is going to stick with me for a while. (laughs) I knew you'd like that. That was a good one. (laughs) I cannot wait to see a picture of it. So it's 1948. We're really excited about the Chicken of Tomorrow. It's just holding its plaque with its wing. (laughs) It's that like well a little space hat for some reason. I picture it with an astronaut helmet oh, on. Oh, for sure. Like right? a little like tin. Like. Yes. And like as maybe a silver like chicken jumpsuit. Yeah. Holding its black. Yes. <laughs> I now love the chicken yeah. of tomorrow. And I feel really guilty for eating its descendants. What if they have 
its photo on the walls, like at the poultry places, like where all the yes. chickens are, and they could like look and be like, Grandpa. I hope they do. <laughs> I guess it would be Grandma because it's oh, a yeah. chicken. Yeah, 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 I guess. But like, yo, yeah. thank that chicken. Yeah. <laughs> what a hen. That got me. <laughs> So it's 1948. Ed's parents already have a five-year-old daughter named Suzanne, and Clarnell is about to give birth to their only son, Ed. Edmund Kemper II, so this is his father, was a World War II veteran who, after the war, tested nuclear weapons in the Pacific Proving Grounds before returning to California, where he worked as an electrician. Now, the Pacific Proving Grounds are a series of small islands, most notably the Marshall Islands, located in the Pacific Ocean between Hawaii and the Philippines, that the United States used as sites for nuclear weapons testing between 1946 and 1962. The whole thing is monumentally unethical, namely because there were people fucking living there. It's horrible. Yeah, we're not great, America. In fact, many of the islands which were part of the Pacific Pacific Proving Grounds are still contaminated from the nuclear fallout, and many of those who were living on said islands at the time of testing have suffered from an increased incidence of various health problems, cough, cough, cancer. Through the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act of 1990, at least $759 million has been paid to the Marshall Islanders as compensation for their exposure to United States nuclear testing. I just thought that was really interesting. Right. So to recap, Ed Jr. fought in World War II, then was involved in a nuclear testing nightmare near Hawaii, and when he returned home from all of this work, he, he was an electrician. But his wife thought being an electrician was beneath him, or rather beneath her. You see, Clarnell thought she deserved an awful lot, and she was not shy about it. She bitterly complained about Ed Jr.'s menial job. This is quotes, her words, not mine. But the two stuck it out for a while, even though it wasn't pretty. Now, I'm not doing a big old history on Clarnell, but she was, for her time, a pretty um, intelligent and ambitious woman. Like, she, you know, obviously went to school in a time where higher education wasn't huge for women, but she was mm-hmm. well-educated and, like, top of her class. Okay. It was thought that a lot was going to be, like, coming from her, that she was going to be big things, and then she, like, wasn't. Oh, okay. This is the idea I got, and the, and the only idea, too, in my head that kind of adds up to a woman who is that bitter about her position in life. Mm-hmm. Ed Kemper III was born at a whopping 13 pounds. Oh, my God. Sweet, merciful Mercedes-Benz. I carried two babies, and my eight-pound son felt like a giant octopus lived in my stomach towards the end. Ew, don't tell me that. Listen, it's magical. You'll love it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine what 13 pounds must have felt like, though. (laughs) That's so much. Oh, my God. Or, like, the... To be candid, the fucking damage it must have done on the way out. Oh, she was wrecked. That is, you're done, dude. Holy oh, cow. No wonder she was so bitter. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> she has no excuse for how awful she is, but there are some things. It is not tight. I, I, but I guess it wasn't too bad because Clarnell and Ed Jr. had another child after okay, that. Okay, okay. Yeah, a Kegels. daughter. <laughs> she keegled that shit right back yeah, together. Okay, you know. Clarnell. Yeah. You got it. They had another daughter, Ed's younger sister, Alan. Um, which is spelled A-L-L-Y-N, and I think is kind of a fun name for a little girl. Oh, cute. Right? Uh, and she was just she was born just three years after Ed. Okay. And so the Kempers lived as a family of three 
in suburban California. I mentioned he was born in Burbank. Burbank is a pretty well-known area. I don't have to tell you about Burbank. But they weren't really living happily. Ed Jr. was quoted as saying of his relationship with his wife, Clarnell, that, quote, suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. Wow. And that she affected him, quote, more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That is rough. Yeah, their marriage is going great. Ed had a fraught relationship with Clarnell from the jump, but he was, however, comparatively close with his father. And so Clarnell's constant berating of the one person he truly loves only made Ed hate her more, which is why when Ed Jr. and Clarnell separated in 1957, it didn't go super well for Ed. Things got even worse when Clarnell decided after the separation that she was going to move with the children to rural Montana, far away from the one person Ed thought he could count on. And, might I add, far away from, like, people. Mm. If you lived in Burbank, surrounded by just people and things and stuff, and then you move to rural Montana, there's going to be a little culture shock going on there. Right. So... While Clarnell may have been kind of okay with her daughters, there's not a huge amount of her relationship with them. It doesn't seem to be as dramatic. She was horrible to Ed. He reminded her of his father and of her failed marriage, and she decided then and there that she would go about taking out all of those frustrations on him. So she channeled all of that rage directly onto her son. Not a great thing to do. Ed was never documented as having, like, a ton of school friends or playmates. I don't know... How many other children were even available in rural Montana? I'm under the impression that it was rather isolated where they lived, but that doesn't mean that other kids didn't exist. It just means that we don't know about them. What we do know is that the Kemper kids spent a lot of time at home playing games with one another, while Clarnell, who couldn't be bothered with her children, was either off doing something else or was just screaming profanities into the ether about their absent father. Hmm. Neither of which are great. So, Leslie, what kind of games were kids playing in the 50s? What what might the Kemper children have been doing in their backyard or creepy, dirt-floored, rural Montella root cellar? Sure. So, with no video games and a couple of children's TV programs, kids mostly played outside. Many of their parents were still feeling the effects of the Great Depression. So, most kids also lacked, like, a ton of games or toys in their house as well. You will play with sticks and dirt and yes. like it. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, games like hide-and-go-seek, tag, and leapfrog were free. So All that was fun. Good. All fun, right? Uh, and you could play those for hours on end. You Just know? leapfrog until you fall over. That's right. Uh, <laughs> really cheap games to play were hopscotch because all you needed was the chalk. My kids still like hopscotch. I know, yeah. Uh, jacks, pick, pick up sticks, tops, and cowboys and Indians, which is not politically correct now. Oh, my God, I had jacks when I was little. I yeah. played jacks all the time. I know. A lot of these, we I would say, like, we also played mm-hmm. as well because our parents played them. So Worse than stepping on a Lego, jacks. stepping on a jack. They're For so sure. pointy. Yeah, and then so Cowboys and Indians, which could be free unless you had cool parents who also, like, bought the costumes. Nice. Yeah. And then there were just, like, straight-up sports at, like, the local park. So basketball, soccer, field hockey, tag football. 
And then kids would spend the whole day outside, usually just needing to be home before the sun went down or in time to, like, set the table for dinner. See, I remember that, too. mm -hmm. I was, like, just free range. I was just released into the world until the streetlights came on, and then I had to be home. Yeah, I only usually played video games or roller coaster tycoon on my computer for hours on, like, rainy days. I I, Yeah, yeah. I was never inside. And also— Furthermore, if you were someone in the summertime who did spend all your time inside, you were like the weird kid. Yes. It wasn't like cool you're playing video games. It was like, oh, why yeah. are you playing video games? Mm-hmm. Or if you had the parents that called you in too early, too. Like, oh, yeah. Way, like hours before the other kids. If you're like the kid that ate dinner at five o'clock or like 4 30. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was always one. Yeah. And I always was like, why are you eating now? That was my my neighbor across the street. He was, like, my age. And mm-hmm. so I always wanted to play with him because I was like, we're going to grow up and get married one day. So, oh, like, I need cute. to know you. Okay. But it was I John, could right? never. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perfect. But his parents never let him and his sister come out to, like, hang out with us. John, what's going on? I know. <laughs> it wasn't John. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> and it's because they ate dinner at 4.30. Yeah. Then there was also the kids who went to bed at 7 o'clock. Yeah. Oh. Did you yeah. have one of those? I, yep. That was that was <laughs> my future husband. It was John. Yeah. That's why it didn't work. I don't know, guys. Let us know if you had a kid like that in your friend group because I feel like it was common, but maybe I just maybe we had weird experiences. Yeah. <laughs> well, those are normal fun games, right? That yeah. sounds great. Playing those games, and that's what most children did. <laughs> Not the Kempers. Oh. What did they play? Oh. From his early childhood, Ed demonstrated some pretty dark tendencies and glaring red flags. Namely, a keen interest in cruelty to animals, which, as we all know, is a leg of the McDonald triad. So mark that off on your bingo cards. (laughs) mm -hmm, There you go. We don't have fires or bedwetting in this episode, but we have a lot of cat killing. Oh, so strap in if cat killing is painful because there are a couple incidences of that coming up. And remember, you don't have to have more than one leg in the triad for some pretty dark things to be in the cards. Everything I've read said you only have to have one of the three. If you have more, I guess that speaks to a greater likelihood of things happening. But like you really do only have to have one. When Ed was 10, he dug a large hole in the yard and buried the family cat alive. Again, I assume their property was rather large and that no one was monitoring the children or the pets, and that is how this was possible. Once it was dead, because he buried it until it died, he dug it up. Okay, I need, I need you. If, if cats are your thing, you have to skip forward. He dug it up, cut off its head, and mounted it on a spike. Cat head on a stick. Okay. Ed later told psychologists that the pleasure in this act came from lying to his family about where the cat had gone. So I it, could see that. I could see that being like the... Yeah, so it wasn't even what he did. It right. was that he had done it and his family didn't know about it. Right. He also said that his fascination for decapitation, which makes a roaring comeback later in this case and later in the same year when his mother had his father decapitate the family's pet chickens and force the children to eat them for dinner. Again, this is a pair of pet hens, not a brood that was bred and culled for food. This is like their pets. Not the chicken of tomorrow. (laughs) Probably related to the chicken of tomorrow. No, because not yet. This is 10 years after 1948. Oh, damn. 
It was direct descendant of the chicken of tomorrow. Oh, man. Maybe it was the chicken of tomorrow. We don't know where it ended up. What if they ate her? Maybe they did. And she made dad cut the head off, and then they ate it for dinner knowingly. Oh, man. That's fucked up. And Ed talks about this incident and says, like, he had to leave, and he rode his bike around crying afterwards and stuff. And then after he cried, he had to eat his pet chicken. It was like a horrifying incident. But then after that, Ed would also go on to kill a second family cat when he was 13 because he thought it liked his sister better than him. So he's like, this one favors my sister, Alan, so it has to die. And it probably did. Maybe it did. They choose a favorite. That is true. They do choose favorites. Again, skip ahead if you guys can't handle cats. He pulled the cat apart into pieces and then left the pieces in his closet until his mother found them. Oh, that's like an act. That's like a... Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, he was just waiting, like, when's she going to find it? But she, How long oh, is it going to take? Got nauseous. He pulled it apart? Said it was in pieces. I don't know precisely how he got it into those pieces. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Aside from Ed's solitary interests, so those are the games he played on his own, there were also games he played involving his sisters. Relax. The one thing the story does not have is incest. Well, with his sisters. Anyway... Ed would gather the girls in the basement and play gas chamber or electric chair. You know those fun games. Right. Games where his sisters would sit him in a chair and tie his arms and legs to a chair. Like they would tie him down. And then he would have them pretend to flip a switch and he would flop around and mimic a super violent death. Or if he was in the gas chamber, he would like choke and fall to the floor. He also was just visualizing... The end of his life. <laughs> I guess, yeah. And he wanted to act it out for his sisters to watch it. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, he also led imaginary rituals to summon evil forces where he would tie his sisters up and pretend to cut off their heads and hands. Okay, like that one's not so bad. But they were like, <laughs> casual That one's stuff. like normal. <laughs> sort of. I mean, it was imaginative. And there's yeah. nothing that says his sister's were not active participants in this. Right. They didn't like well, I'm sure know. I'm sure they I'm sure it came off as somewhat funny, like flailing around, like Exactly. But they I'm were, sure after like, you know, the fifth day they were like, Can we like maybe just have like a cup of tea yeah, can or we something? Just knock this shit off, please. Like, why do we always have to die? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there are like conflicting accounts from his sisters. Sometimes that this isn't a big deal and sometimes they're like, It was dramatizing. I hated it. I'm sure he would trick us back, into like playing yeah. these games or something. But like again, this is the information is conflicting place to place. So I don't know. I mean, you can believe whatever one you want. I always wonder if my friends, I had a couple of friends that we played some weird games with, and I always wonder if they think about that like Leslie probably killed some people. No. <laughs> or they're just like, oh, it makes sense. She's doing true crime. She was real weird. <laughs> Did you play Gas Chamber? No, but I would turn everything into like a dramatic death scene at the end. Like we'd have tea parties and I would find them boring. So then I'd be like, my tea was poisoned. And then like they'd have to nurse me. And I'd well, be that's like, just a fun uh, game. And I, yeah, they hated it. Also. They were like, we just wanted tea. Then you were the star. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is lame. Let me show you. <laughs> All eyes on yeah. me, folks. I'm going to make it better. <laughs> I watch all my children. Let me. <laughs> oh, my God. Right? My mom loved those shows. Yeah. That was like a thing. Let me tell you how this is going to go. <laughs> Sit back, folks. Yeah. Now, while I did mention that Ed did not have any romantic interest in his sisters, in second grade, when he was still living in California, he did have a crush on one of his teachers. And what did he do about that? 
Well, naturally, he took his father's military bayonet and snuck onto her property to watch her through a window for hours on end. Oh. Ed's older sister, Susan, liked to tease him about this crush. And once she asked him why he didn't just kiss his teacher, and young Ed replied, quote, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. Yeah, that's what happened. I will remind you that at this point, Ed is max eight years old. Oh. Second grade. That's Flynn's age, basically. That's like a little child. So he had already been ripping cats apart? No, this is, I just went back a few oh, years okay, because I segued with romance. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, this is like before he like, Kill, the, two years after this, he started killing the cats. Now, these little eccentricities may not have rung the appropriate alarm bells for Ed's angry and distracted mother or his father back when they all lived together, but they were enough for his sisters to be wary of him. His oldest sister tried to actually to do away with him twice mm. in their childhood. Once, she pushed him in front of an oncoming train, and another time, she pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool, and at the time, Ed couldn't swim. Interesting. Uh-huh. So love, anger, and death are really mixed up and all over the place in this household. And at the center of it all was Clarnell, who never really cared for her oversized son. She would constantly point out how strange Ed was, how much bigger he was than all of his classmates. That 13-bound baby never really leveled off. Ed was always a full head and shoulders taller than every other kid in his class and solid. As an adult, he tops out at, I think, six foot nine and 280 pounds. Oh, he is wow. a giant man. Wow. Very big. Some parents would comment on how Ed might have been like a linebacker. Like, if you have a kid that big, usually you're like, that boy's going to play football or he's going to mm -hmm. do something. But not Clarnell. She just liked to point out about how strange and ugly he was. She also started to get pretty creeped out by him after a little while. The sisters were saying, after, I mean, after he started killing Cass, the sisters were kind of afraid of him, and his mother started to be a little prickly around him. And so in Montana, she forced him to sleep in the basement. They all slept upstairs in bedrooms, and he had to sleep in the basement. So after dinner, she would just put him down there. And he wasn't allowed to have any lights, so he slept by the light of the furnace. And he would talk about how he would sit there by himself and rats would run over his feet. Ew. And it would, he would just live in terror of it. And that was all night long for him. That's horrible. Yeah, that's a horrible thing for a kid to go through. And his sisters, like, they, I mean, when they talk to his sisters, do they, like, corroborate those yeah, stories? Yeah, they do. They're like, he had, to, he had to sleep in the basement. She didn't want him in the main part of the house. That's 100% true. Wow. Um, all of his stuff, I, well, I want to say most of it. Some stuff you, you can't. He's the only person that would know. But, I, like, everything was backed up. He has two sisters, and um, we'll find out later that he also has a half-brother half and a step-brother. And the step-brother has recently started speaking out. And he backs up other stuff, too. So okay. it fits all the checks and balances. He was definitely locked in a basement. And at that point in time, he also started taking his sister's dolls in the basement with them, and he would pull their heads off. Okay. Decapitation is like a long-standing running theme in this story, and it never stops until he's in jail. While all of this is going on in Montana, Ed's father had moved to Los Angeles. Some sources say Van Nuys. Some say Los Angeles. I think they're like the same pretty much. I could be wrong. California, I don't know your geography. I love you. I cannot wait to be in you. I don't know where things are. <laughs> so Ed's father 
um, had moved and remarried a beautiful woman named Elfriede, I think is how you pronounce it, Weber, who had a son of her own, who just happened to be two years younger than Ed. And this woman is gorgeous. Mm. Clarnell looks like her name is Clarnell. <laughs> like, this woman is like blonde, Doris Day, Bob movie star type look. She's very different. Now, the original Kempers finally formally got divorced when Ed was 13. So they had separated when he was nine. The divorce actually was finalized when he was 13. And somehow his father got married in the interim, which I didn't think you could do that, but maybe it didn't matter. Maybe he just did it. Mm. Yeah. After the formal divorce happens, um, Ed was granted permission to visit his father in California, which he did enthusiastically. Now, Ed thought that his father would want to keep him and that he would be able to escape his life in Montana and his horrible mother and live happily ever after in California. But that's not what happened. Ed's father had a new life and his new wife and a new stepson. And his wife and stepson were wildly uncomfortable with Ed's presence. Maybe because they didn't know him, new person, or maybe because he did strange and awful things all the time, like lurk around the house silently and stare at his stepmother intently until she became so uncomfortable she had to close herself in her bedroom. Wow. He just sat there and like bored holes through her with his eyes. Ooh, so weird. I don't like that. He also always tried to watch her get changed and like catch her naked. Because mm. as I mentioned, she's really beautiful. And there are a lot of sources that say he also equated her beauty, like that's where he attached like beautiful women in anger because he felt like this beautiful woman had taken his father out of his life. Okay. And also that like somehow that weaponized her sexuality in his mind. Now, this isn't the kind of kid you're going to want to keep around if you can help it at all. So Ed was sent back to his mother's house in Montana after a brief quote-unquote visit that he thought was going to be forever but wasn't. But he didn't want to be in Montana with the mother he hated, so Ed ran away a few months later back to his father's house to find out now that his stepmother was pregnant. Ed would go to do super charming things to his pregnant stepmother like follow her around the house and shut all the blinds as she walked from room to room because it was too bright in the house. So imagine just, like, walking into your living room and he, like, closes all the blinds and is like, it needs to be dark. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this time his stepmother wasn't going to tolerate this bullshit. He was, she was like, nope, you got to go. And so they contacted Clarnell, and it was decided that Ed would instead go to live with his paternal grandparents, Ed I and Maud Matilda Huey Kemper, that's a name, on a ranch in the mountains of North Fork, California. Hmm. So they were like, I don't want him. Do you want him? I don't want him. Let's send him to live with your parents. That's not great for a child to know is happening. Right. It's not great to happen in general, but especially he was well aware of what was happening. Ed's grandparents were also, like, their marriage was the same dynamic as his parents' marriage. His grandmother was angry, insulting, and controlling, and his grandfather was what he called a little senile and just kind of, like, took it. Ed did, however, say that he loved his grandfather. This is one of the few people Ed says he truly loves. When Ed was 15, his grandfather gave him a rifle for his birthday, I believe, and taught him how to shoot it, and he taught him how to shoot it by shooting birds. Wait, I know this story. Yep. (laughs) I know what's going to happen. Uh Uh-huh. Is this a good pursuit for a darkly troubled teen who has a history of killing kitties? No. Absolutely not. 
But his grandfather seemed to never know any better in general. He's one of those people that you're like, that's just grandpa. Leave him alone. Right. Yeah. And it was something they could do together. Great. Yeah. Ed hated living in North Fork and fought with his grandmother bitterly, just like he fought with Clarnell, because she reminds him of his mother. He said that she was constantly emasculating him and his grandfather, exactly like Clarnell had done with him and his father. And on August 27th, 1964, while Ed I was out grocery shopping, Ed III sat down to breakfast with his grandmother and immediately got in an ultra-heated argument. Now, after a few rounds, he stormed off. But then he came back with his shiny new rifle, and his grandmother sarcastically spat, Oh, you'd better not be shooting the birds again. And Ed responded by shooting her in the head and back. And then he stood over her in shock while the sounds of his grandfather's car coming home from the grocery store slowly crept into his consciousness. So what did he do? Ed knew that if his grandfather saw his wife dead at the kitchen table, he would never get over that sight. It would destroy him. He also knew that he was going to immediately tell on him. So Ed walked out into the driveway, and when his grandfather got out of the car, grocery bags in hand, he shot him too, straight to death. One of the two people he said he loved. Right. Then Ed went inside and called his mother. Okay. Blows my mind. He told her about the whole thing and asked her what to do. Clarnell told him to call the police, and so he did, and then waited calmly to be taken into custody. When the cops arrived, Ed was compliant and calm. When asked why he did what he did, Ed replied, quote, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma. Oh, is that all? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh-huh. Now, at this point in time, we are in the era which lasts an embarrassingly long time, when it was immediately assumed that every killer who did not have a clear reason for their actions had schizophrenia. Okay. We've right. talked about this before. If someone is a murderer and you aren't like, well, it's because his wife cheated on him or because this person stole from them, any nebulous reason, they're like, well, you have schizophrenia. That's the label we stamp on you right away. Now, we, have, we assume now that this, we know this is an absurd Obsessment. It's crazy to just think that. But back then, when in doubt, assumed the killer has schizophrenia and was in a psychotic break when they murdered people and just didn't know what was going on, so they did it. And I think that was comforting to people. They just thought, oh, well, this person is sick, and that's why that happened. Right. Now I have a why I can walk away. Never mind the fact that it is very rare for schizophrenia to present at 15 years old. But it's possible, and no one really looked into it that hard. And so Ed was pronounced legally insane— by court psychiatrists. It's important to note that these are court psychiatrists and sent to a Tascadero State Hospital, which is a maximum security facility that houses mentally ill convicts. From the ages of 15 to 21, this is where Ed stayed. His formative developmental years, the years that are most prominent in your sexual development, those were all spent in a small room, mostly alone, being examined by psychiatrists, which Maybe what some people need, and in that case, they should absolutely get it. But there is just one problem. Ed wasn't insane in any definition of the word, and he certainly didn't have schizophrenia. And so it was really easy for him to ingratiate himself with this staff. These are people who deal with violent people 
who do not have the means to be rational on a daily basis. So someone who is polite and compliant is going to be like their favorite person in the whole world. Yeah. At Atascadero, California Youth Authority, psychiatrists and social workers disagreed with the court psychiatrists, and rightfully so. Their reports stated, now these are people that are not motivated by the law at all. They're just motivated by, like, the actual person. And they said that Edge, quote, showed no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. They also observed him to be intelligent and introspective. Initial testing measured his IQ at 136, which is over two standard deviations above the average. He was re-diagnosed with a less severe condition after they found out he was super smart, which, again, these are not mutually exclusive things. You can be hyper-intelligent and have schizophrenia, but they, again, this is a different time. So then he was re-diagnosed with, quote, a personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type. I think he's aggressive-aggressive, but that's just me. Mm -hmm. Later on in his time at Atascadero, Kemper was given another IQ test, which gave a higher result than the first And this time, it came out with 145, which is almost staggering Mm -hmm. from what I can see. And this fact will come back time and time again. Ed has an enormously high IQ. Remember, he's still alive. Oh, yeah, he's still alive. (laughs) But I've read in so many places that IQ isn't necessarily the only measure of a person's intelligence. And I have to admit, I don't know precisely what it measures. I've only been told it's this is how smart you are. So Leslie, maybe you can help us out here. What exactly are we dealing with with IQ? Sure. Uh, so I learned a lot today. Perfect. Um, so formally referred to as intellectual quotient mm-hmm. tests. IQ tests come in many forms. They can help diagnose intellectual disabilities or measure someone's intellectual potential. Mm. So French psychologist Alfred Binet created the first intelligence test in the early 1900s. Several years later, American doctor of psychology Henry Herbert Goddard, Goddard, G-O-D-D-A-R-D, took the Binet test from from French to English and used it to test basic intellectual functions in U.S. school children and to support mental health diagnoses. Nice. Goddard remains a controversial figure in history of psychology. This is due to his argument that adults with low IQs shouldn't procreate. He was kind of like the one that. No, he was a eugenics guy. Society, for the most part, has since moved away from this viewpoint. Not great. Yeah. Uh, Today, there are numerous IQ tests that are used for different purposes, but most are used to help diagnose learning disabilities. IQ tests are set at 100 being the average. Mm-hmm. Every few years, scientists have to revise the test to bring the average back to 100. So most people's scores, scores range from 85 to 115. Oh, my God. My 10-year-old's IQ was 125 when she was 8. Yeah. And That's so, scary. <laughs> yeah. And you would reassess, too, mm-hmm. after because um, you're reass- you're, you're, you become assessed within your age group. So it's not that she's... 125, like, next to you. She's 125 next to, like, other 8-year-olds. That's still crazy Which is smart. still, yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> but she's not, course. like, an evil genius. That's good. Right, but, so, again. Or maybe she is. We don't know yet. <laughs> so, right now, a high IQ over 100 is typically associated with high intelligence. 
Extreme intelligence is 130 or above, resulting in about that 2% of the population. And these are the two percenters that can join the Mensa High IQ Society. Still, these outcomes are stereotypical. A high score usually means the person has a lot of potential, not that they're particularly smart. That's where I think this is interesting Mm -hmm. because that's what I've heard. Your IQ does not necessarily measure how smart you are. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's how smart you could be? Not even how smart you could be, just how, I don't know, like how you could kind of get along in the world, like how you can. Sure, okay. Yeah. So someone who scores below 100 is considered to have below average intelligence. Extremely low scores below 70 are usually a cause for concern. They may indicate an underlying learning disability. And this is a a very low percentage too, which I thought was interesting. We've likewise had people with that kind of IQ mm-hmm. on our podcast, like we've talked yep. about. I think Ed Gein was one of them. Yes. Which is funny because Kemper and Ed Gein are said to be the two people they put together to create um, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Yeah, which makes so sense. So it's like the, such extreme disparity mm-hmm. in intelligence as very, or perceived intelligence, right. I should say. An IQ test may be the first step in diagnosing intellectual issues. So basically, an IQ test is used to evaluate a person's reasoning and problem-solving skills. Hmm. So it's a little bit more on that level. Um, The tests are given by licensed psychologists. They are usually composed of several parts. For instance, one of the tests has 15 subtests. Each subtest measures a different aspect of IQ, such as math, language, reasoning, memory, and information processing speed. The results are then combined into one score called the IQ, and the scores are also adjusted by age. The average IQ is widely used to measure human intelligence and is a useful tool, but not without caution. Average IQ varies by country, and some people have manipulated this information to justify racist motives. Mm. IQ tests have been skewed to use as proof of superior races and genders. Though to this day, scientists have seen zero differences in results of men and women. And any difference in race is not because of genetics, but more about environmental factors like access to education or proper nutrition. Even infectious diseases within countries could cause test scores to be lower. So that's like the idea of um, once we started to get vaccines, the Mm. IQs started going up. Huh. Interesting. Because uh, it, uh, they think that when you have an infectious disease, your brain, especially when it's in its developmental stage, mm-hmm. your body is trying to fight off this infection and not worrying so much about your development in the brain at the time. Interesting. So again, just to recap, the IQ test results is not to determine how smart you are, but more so what your intellectual potential is. So like, you, again, your problem-solving skills and your reasoning. That's very relevant here. Yes. Because while we don't have a lot of formal education when we're dealing with Ed Kemper, we do have a lot of cleverness and creativity and ability to learn. Mm -hmm. He's constantly learning from his surroundings. Yeah. And even going back, I mean, the reason that we know these stories is because he's telling us and Mm -hmm. he is reasoning and problem solving why he did these things. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Ed was a model patient and prisoner. He was good-natured, polite, respectful, and most importantly, helpful. It was these traits, along with his constant good behavior, that allowed Ed to have jobs during his time at Atascadero. 
specifically administering tests for the staff psychiatrist, which is, wow, enormously unwise. I struggle to get a job doing this very thing, and I am an adult person with an advanced education and no criminal record. Yeah. I'd really rather administer polygraphs, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, while it appeared that Ed was working hard and reforming himself, what he was actually doing was learning. Mm -hmm. Learning how to appear to have the kind of personality that would pass all of these tests. After he learned how the test worked, he was able to manipulate any psychiatrist he encountered. He even learned from criminals he was interviewing. So he would pick up tricks like he learned from a lot of sex offenders that if he was going to rape a woman, it was best to kill her and leave no witness to your crime. Mm. That's charming, right? But he just soaked in every bit of information he got. So on his 21st birthday, December 18th, 1969, Ed was released on parole from Atascadero just six years after being admitted and killing his grandparents in cold blood. And against the recommendations of every psychiatrist who worked with him, Ed was placed in the care of the one person he needed to stay as far away from as possible, his mother. So it's conditional upon his parole that he be, like, in somebody's care. Right. I know he's 21, but I guess that was just part of the fact that he had been locked up in his youth, so they had to release him in the care of somebody. That's so, yeah, I can't believe he went back to his mom. Yeah, bizarre. And his father's still alive at this point. Like, mm -hmm. he, he could have gone to him, but he didn't. My, just so you know, so I don't know the story. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't know the story at all. But I've only seen two episodes of Mindhunter. Oh. And everything you're saying, like, it, that's, I'm getting every visual. Like, I'm remembering yeah. it all. Like, they did such a good job of, like, actually telling his, his story. They did a great job of telling his story. And they also represent him very well in the actor who plays him. He yeah. speaks like him. He mm -hmm. looks like him. His presence is similar, but he is a lot more scary, yeah. which I think in turn is actually more frightening. Okay. Because on Mindhunter, when you see Kemper, a lot of the times, like, he's kind of frightening. Uh-huh. But if you watch the actual Kemper interviews, which I will post some of in the show notes because they are just ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Yeah. You can find them. He is so easy to watch. Right. He's affable and pleasant. There's never a moment of him, even when he's talking about grisly murder, mm -hmm. where you're intimidated. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is just some guy telling me a story. It's fine. Right. Which is so much more unsettling to me that you're just – you could easily be comfortable in this man's presence. Mm -hmm. Easily. If we met him tomorrow, we'd probably be fine talking to him. Right. So anyway. But yeah, you're doing a great job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> he's, he's back with his mom. Now, while he was away in lockup for those six years, Clarnell had remarried, taken the last name of Strandberg, then also got divorced again, and moved to her new home at 609 Ord Street in Aptos, California, which also happened to be a short drive from where she worked uh, at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She was an administrative assistant there. So this puts Ed near a college. And technically, that should be good because one of the conditions of his parole was that he had to enroll in college courses. He also claimed at this point in time that he had aspirations of becoming a police officer, though he was rejected from the force because of his size. I didn't know that was a thing. They're like, you're too tall. Yeah, probably to be uh, too intimidating. Yeah, I guess I could see that. Mm -hmm. Huh. 
Whatever, though. At the time of his release from Atascadero, Ed was his full six foot nine inches tall, which is where he earned his nickname, Big Ed. Because, yeah, that that checks out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ed maintained relationships with some Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection from the force and even spent a lot of his time at a local bar where police hung out when they were off duty called the jury room. Now, some would say it was because he wanted to surround himself with something he wanted to be but couldn't. He, like, really Mm -hmm. wanted to be a cop, so he hung out with them all the time. That's not what happened. In reality, once again, he was learning. So he took the classes and studied criminal justice and surrounded himself with police officers because if you want to evade the law, the one thing you should do is learn about it. Right. If you want to get away with murder, know which evidence to get rid of. And nothing teaches you those things quite like studying criminal justice. Yeah. So again, that IQ stuff comes back into play because he had the potential to to connect those dots. He figured he played the long game. He could see those things in his future. He's like, I'm going to need to know how to cover these things up. So I'm going to study cop stuff. I'm going to need to know how to circumnavigate psychiatrists thinking that I'm crazy. So I'm going to learn as much as I can about psychiatry. Right. It's like Dexter. Yeah. It's exactly like that. So after his rejection from the police force, Ed worked a series of odd jobs before being hired by the state of California Division of Highways, which is now known as the California Department of Transportation. And this was a really rocky time at home for Ed. His relationship with his mother had grown even more hostile and toxic, which we're going to say a couple more times. I can't imagine how it gets worse, but apparently it does. And just in the same way, not anything different. Clarnell blamed Ed for her failure with men in general now. So she has two failed marriages. She blames him for both. She blames him for her lack of, like, dates and romantic endeavors. She blames him for the lack of sex in her life, which is a weird, gross thing to blame your child for. But not only that, she now begins to harp on the fact that Ed would himself never be able to get a girlfriend. She takes to point out all the beautiful young college girls that surround him and specifically say, you're never going to get women like that. They'll ignore you. They're going to think you're big and weird and ugly, and they never want an enormous man-child like you. And she also loved to point out that she didn't think he was man enough for anyone. Oh, she's the worst. Yeah, she's terrible. Now, once Ed saved enough money, he moved out to live with a friend in Alameda, California. And there, he still complained of being unable to get away from his mother because she regularly called him and paid him surprise visits, which is so strange because she didn't want want him around, and yet she couldn't stay away from him. It seems to me like she likes having someone to yell at. Oh, for sure. So despite having a state job, Ed often had financial difficulties, which resulted in like on again, off again stints living at his mother's home. So for the next foreseeable chunk of the story, he is on again, off again living with his mother. The same year that he began working for the highway division, Ed was hit by a car while riding his motorcycle. And this had to be a choice to make himself appear more masculine because of what his mother was always saying about him. I bet he was like, I'll get a motorcycle. Now I look like a man. So in this accident, Ed's arm is really badly injured, and he receives $15,000 in a settlement. Now, this is about $90,000 in 2019 dollars. So that's a lot of money. So he receives this in a civil suit that he filed against the car's driver. Now, strangely enough, he's still on again, off again, lives with his mother all the time, even though he has this windfall of money. I don't know what's happening to him. He did, however, purchase a 1969 Ford Galaxy and began to go on long drives. On these drives, he would frequently see young female hitchhikers. 
students at the local university who were just trying to get from point A to point B. Now, we talked about this in the Mary Vincent episode, but hitchhiking, especially in California in the early 70s, was super popular. There's a whole, like, counterculture surrounding it, and a lot of it was, like, young, beautiful people that just kind of caught rides from A to B. So at first, Ed would just fantasize about picking these girls up. He had other fantasies about them, too. He wanted these girls, and by now I think we can all tell that in his mind the only way to get them is if they're dead. Mm. So he can only have sex with a girl if they're dead. They're never going to agree to it alive. He has been convinced of this. Right. And so then, instead of being obsessed with trying to find a girlfriend, he becomes obsessed with killing a girl. But so he hasn't—he's never been on a date. No, not not to my knowledge. And he was was locked up. He was locked up with— Mentally ill people. Men, too, probably. Men. I can't yeah. imagine it was, uh, like, integrated okay. housing. Right. Wow. I could be wrong. I don't—that's not listed yeah, anywhere. Yeah, but I can't imagine the populations were mixed in a, a place that housed mentally ill criminals. Yeah, I don't know. I could be wrong, again. Because then he might have dated. He might have. <laughs> I mean— <laughs> And so, Ed begins packing his car with knives— Blankets, plastic bags, and handcuffs. So he's driving around with these things in his car, fantasizing about killing a girl because that's the only way he's ever going to have sex. So he's obsessed with having to kill a girl. Now, at first, he was just picking up hitchhikers and letting them go. So he would take them to their destination, and the whole time he would be, like, daring himself to see how long he could go without killing someone. And according to Ed, in that point in time, he picked up around 150 hitchhikers that he let go. Wow. So there are 150 women out there in the world that were in Ed Kemper's car and didn't know it wow. and lived through it. And he did this 150 times before he started to feel more homicidal sexual urges, which he would call little zapples. Ew. <laughs> I knew you were going to hate that so much. He'd be like, my zapples. Got to kill no. somebody. Oh. <laughs> then he began acting on his little zapples. Ew, no. You don't like little zapples? on may 7th 1972 ed was driving around berkeley california which is where he was from probably a pretty triggering scenario when he picked up two 18 year old hitchhikers offering to give them a ride to stanford university now they were young beautiful students from fresno state university their names were marianne pesci and anita mary lucasa and they were precisely the kind of women Clarnell, Clarnell specifically told him he could never have. The kind of women she said would have laughed in his face. They are slender young girls with bright, innocent eyes and shoulder-length hair. It is important to note that they were both innocent and small. Ed could have easily picked up sex workers, but those women were street smart and probably pretty strong. You have to kind of be able to fend for yourself if that's how you're mm-hmm. making your money. But these girls were neither one of those things. They were innocent, and he called them little dolls. Oh. You know, like the ones whose head he pulled off in the basement <sighs> of his mother's house. It all comes back. And I listened to an interview where I heard him call them little dolls. So that isn't even, isn't even like uh, something I read somewhere else. Like that, it came out of his mouth. Right. After driving for an hour, Ed managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda, California, which he was familiar with from his work at the highway department. Again, he was always learning. So working at the highway department, he was also able to look at routes 
off the beaten path that were in secluded wooded areas, and he knew where they all were. Always learning. He got there somehow without alerting the girls that he had changed directions from where they wanted to go, and most likely because he was keeping them engaged in conversation. Because at this point, Ed knew how to kind of be a decent time. He knew how to put the mask of, like, fun normal guy on and wear it as long as it served him. In this remote area, Ed snapped into action and handcuffed Marianne in the front seat. Then he picked up Anita, like a baby, and carried her around the back of the car and locked her in the trunk. Once the trunk was locked, Ed strangled Marianne, or at least he tried to, but it was much more difficult and lengthy of a process than he thought it would be. Now, he harps on this a lot in interviews. He says to a lot of psychiatrists that he was absolutely stunned that it didn't happen like it does in the movies. He said, in the movies, it was so quick. This is so easy. It takes 25 seconds. I I was strangling this girl for minutes, and she wasn't even blacking out. We've talked about this before. Strangulation is not what you think it is. But he was absolutely stunned by this. He should have listened to a true crime podcast. He should have listened to any of my What the Fridays. Um, and so ultimately, he pulled a penknife out of his pocket and began to stab at her. But this also didn't kill her. So he grabbed a plastic bag and put it over her head. But Marianne bit through the bag. She may have been a little doll, but this girl fucking was scrappy. She was fighting hard. At this point, Ed didn't know what was going to work, so he took his penknife out and slit her throat from ear to ear. And he stood there completely flabbergasted that it took that much effort to kill her. Like, he could not fathom it was going to take that much work. I feel like I can just imagine him being like, I'm really sorry about this. I didn't think it was going to take so long. You're not wrong. (gasps) No. (laughs) Nope. But then he remembered there was another girl in the trunk. Yep. Can't forget about her. You know, he had just planned on raping both of them. But, you know, in the back of his head, he knew in order to get there, he had to kill them. And he recalled the words of his friendly neighborhood sex offender and remembered that he couldn't leave any survivors, so everything kind of ties up exactly how he needed it to. So he approaches the trunk. Now, this moment is bananas when you listen to him describe it. He talks about how traumatized he was. It's like, I was so traumatized of having to put forth all of that effort to kill that girl. It was so traumatic for me. Was it? Then he also talks about how he got to the trunk of the car knowing this living girl is there and he can't find his keys. He thinks he's locked them in the trunk with the girl. Okay. So he's like patting himself down. He can't find him. And he starts to panic and like lose his shit before the last place he looks is his back pocket and he finds the keys there. And he thinks that this is some kind of remarkable stroke of luck or divine intervention because he never stored his keys there. And they just appeared in his back pocket. There you go. Just to help. He also never brutally murdered a young girl before that day. So it was... Time for new experiences, I suppose. Yeah. Maybe Amy Carlson helped out somehow. You know, she's everywhere. Yeah. So I don't doubt it. Or she was Ed Kemper. No, he's still alive. I always forget that. Yeah. Ed also frequently recounts a really strange and specific moment when he handcuffed Marianne, like before he killed her. And this is where what you just said comes into play. He recalls, quote, that he brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and was embarrassed by this. And he said, whoops, I'm sorry. Ugh. Because he touched her boob with the back of his hand. Even though he went on to like brutally murder her a few minutes later. Boob touching. Out of line. Huh. So once he finds the keys, he gets Anita out of the trunk, takes her in the car, and stabs her to death as well. He doesn't even mess around with the strangling or the bag. He just stabs her. After both women were dead, he has sex with both of their lifeless bodies in the car and then puts them in the trunk. Now, on his way home, Ed is stopped by a police officer for having a broken taillight. Bodies in the trunk. 
So he goes so far as to ask the officer, okay, do you need to check the taillight through the trunk? And the officer declines and just lets him go with a warning because he's like one of those cops is like, no, 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 just go get it fixed. You can be on your way. Have a great day. Because again, puts on the, the mask of being like a really nice, affable guy. When Ed is later asked, like, what the hell he thought he was going to do if they opened the trunk? He said at that point he was resigned to kill that cop. Mm-hmm. He knew he, he suggested looking in the trunk because he knew he had to kill him. Right. And the fact that the officer let him go is what saved his life, but also cost six more women theirs. Right. So these— But, like, what would—I mean, I've gotten pulled over for, like, a headlight. Mm-hmm. Like, what would they have—like, they would just let me go. Like, they normally don't check something, right? Well, he like, offered that. He said, oh, do you want to go in the trunk and ch- should we check it out? What am I supposed to do? I have a broken taillight. I guess he didn't know. He didn't oh, make that connection. he just didn't. Okay. He had never been pulled over for that kind of thing yeah. before and thought, like, okay, well, they're going to go look now or we're going to have to fix it on the side of the road and I'm done. I got gotcha. you. Okay. So it's potential for intelligence. Okay. Not necessarily. (laughs) It all comes back to that. These killings were during a brief period of time where Ed was living with a roommate. Again, I said they're little splotches of time. On and off again. Yes. And on this particular afternoon, Ed's roommate was not home. So he took the bodies into his apartment where he photographed them and had sex with them before dismembering them, taking particular care to completely decapitate them like the cats and the chickens and the dolls. He then puts the body parts into plastic bags, which he abandoned near Loma Prieta Mountain, except for the heads. He kept those for a little while. And yes, he did what the girl in the opening monologue expected he might have done with them, which is have sex with them. (laughs) Later, he would dispose of the heads in the same location in a ravine. So like right by where he put the bodies, but there's like a little ravine there. Anita's skull has never been located to this day. And I believe they only found Marianne's in 2017. Wow. Yeah. And and not for lack of trying. I'll, I'll get into that later, but like they just couldn't find them. Next, on the evening of September 14th, 1972, Ed picked up a 15-year-old dance student named Aiko Koo, who had decided to hitchhike to ballet class after missing her bus. Oh, what a cute name. I too. know. Aiko Koo was a little girl. He's yeah. a child. Ed drove to a remote area with her where he pulled a gun on Aiko before accidentally locking himself out of the car. Oh, he is he's bad. I know. However, he was so manipulative that he convinced Aiko to let him back in the car despite the fact that the gun was locked in the car with her. In the <sighs> car, doors locked, has the gun. She lets him back in because she's a baby. <sighs> Once he got back inside the car... Ed strangled Aiko, had a gun, chose to strangle her, knew how difficult it was, still chose strangling, and had sex with her dead body. Then he packed Aiko's body into the trunk of his car and went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks. Then he returned to his apartment, body in the car the whole time. He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened his trunk to, quote, admire his catch like a fisherman. Back at his apartment, he had sex with the corpse again, then dismembered and disposed of the remains. Aiko's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put up hundreds of flyers asking for information. She did not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or status. Hate that one. Yeah. And it's not done. 
Before Ed had the chance to dispose of Iko's body, he had to go receive a final evaluation from two psychiatrists stating that he was mentally sound and rehabilitated so he could have his previous crimes expunged from his records. He did this with Iko's head in his trunk. Two psychiatrists deemed him sane and said to have the murders of his grandparents taken off his record with a little girl's head in the trunk of his car in the parking lot. It's so crazy I had to say it twice. Right. But this also, again, goes back to the first big crime that he did with the cat where he just really enjoyed that he was lying and getting away with it. Absolutely. That they were in the, he was like right there. He could look out the window probably and see his car with this head in the trunk and he knew he had this secret. Yeah. It's so gross and horrible. It is gross, but the dots connect in such a way that you don't always get. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you yeah. don't always see the path of, like, why a crazy person like, not crazy, or why a person like this does what they do. Right. It's so rare that you can actually just see how it works. So on November 29th, 1972, his juvenile records were permanently expunged. The last report from his probation psychiatrist read, quote, If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we were dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of danger to himself or any other member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. End quote. On January 7th, 1973... Like... Rolling my eyes. Oh, I know. So hard. <laughs> Ed, who had moved back in with his mother yet again at this point. And again, things are, are just truly horrible in this house. Constantly tense, constant screaming. So he's driving around the uh, Cabrillo College campus on the night of January 7th. And he picks up an 18-year-old student named Cynthia Ann. She went by Cindy. Shawl. He drove to a wooded area as per usual and shot her with a 22 caliber pistol, so he's a little impatient this time. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car and drove back to his mother's house where he kept her body hidden in a closet, like the cat, in his room overnight. When his mother left for work the next morning, he had sex with Cindy's body, then removed the bullet from her corpse before dismembering it and decapitating it in his mother's bathtub. Mm Mm-hmm. Ed then disposed of Cindy's body by throwing the pieces over a cliff, but kept her severed head for several days. Regularly, of course, he was having sex with it. Then he buries, in between the having sex with it times, he buried her head in his mother's garden, facing upwards at his mother's bedroom window. He later stated that he did this because his mother, quote, always wanted people to look up to her. He is something else. Mm Mm-hmm. A pathologist later determined that Cindy had been cut into pieces with a power saw. So as he goes along, he's more and more efficient, too. So now he's using a gun. He's using a power saw. Things are much cleaner and faster than they were when he started. Again, learning, 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 learning. Right. Always being better at what he's doing. He was Always a, learning. Oh, what's I that know. song from? Oh, I don't know. Waiting for Guffman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. So at this point, he's a well-oiled machine. When he picked up a girl, he would let them in the car— And then, oh, this gives me the creeps. 
he would, like, they would get in the car and close the door. And then he would reach over top of them and open and close the door and be like, I just got to make sure it closes. Sometimes the door doesn't close and I want to make sure you're safe and it's locked. But when he did this, he would, in his giant fucking enormous palm, he would have a chapstick. And he would drop the chapstick in the handle of the door. And this would jam the door handle so you couldn't get out of the car. I know. This is like a rat learning a maze. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. You got that right. Yep. I don't know why, but like that little detail is one of the things that's that I think is the scariest. Yeah. Just like because it's little... very much uh, like a horror film. Like today, it's like what we see done. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, like like Dexter. Like I watch yeah. Dexter because I know at the end of the day, like I'm not what he's going after, so we're okay. Sure. But like, it's still scary that I don't just what he's doing. It's just terrifying. This is making those little connections, being like, if I have a chapstick in my palm, I can just drop it in the door, and then they can't get out. It's just yeah. nuts to me. Never let someone check your door for you. You can do that yourself. You're yeah. Fine. Be an independent woman. Yeah. On February 5th, 1973, after having a heated argument with his mother, Ed left his house to go hunting. At this point, the media had caught on to the fact that someone was murdering local female students because bodies had been turning up left and right, cut to pieces, in wooded areas, and they had dubbed this faceless monster the co-ed killer. Oh. A phrase we all know I hate. (laughs) Tell and us about I it, won't Allie. use because co-ed refers to only, like, and only attractive, usually, female college students. And yet co-educational means both men and women in an educational environment. And yet it is never used to describe men. It is only used to describe women and only instead of using their personhood. Calling yeah. them a co-ed is robbing them of their humanity. It's like they're just a thing. They're just a pretty thing walking around. That is a female student. Okay? I get can we please cancel co-ed? Can that be done? I'm so mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> Likewise, like I will rarely call Ed Kemper the co-ed killer because I fucking hate it. But that is what he is famously known as. Anyway, at this point, there's a heightened <laughs> suspicion because there's a serial killer preying on hitchhiking students in the Santa Cruz area. So students were advised to only accept rides from cars with a university sticker on them. But Ed's mother works at UC Santa Cruz. And so he got himself a sticker and put it on his car. Oh, damn it. Mm-hmm. He then encounters 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen Allison. Her name is Alice Helen, but she goes by Allison, Lou, on the uh, UC Santa Cruz campus. So according to Ed, Rosalind entered his car first and reassured Allison that it was okay to get in. So she was like, I don't know about this. There's like creepy stuff going on. And her friend was like, no, 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 get it. It's fine. He then immediately shot them both and stuffed them in the trunk. Hmm. Ed then brought them both back to his mother's house. This time he beheaded them in his car and then carried the headless corpses into his mother's house to have sex with them. Then he dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and discarded their remains the next morning. When questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated his victims, he explained, quote, the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at, the brain, eyes, mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in a girl's body without the head. I hate him. Mm -hmm. But also, remember the chickens. After their heads were cut off, 
they were still dinner. Hmm. Chicken of tomorrow. <laughs> All comes back to the chicken <laughs> of tomorrow. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> so these women were really just a substitute for the woman Ed really wanted dead. And that's obviously his mother. It was a long time coming, but we knew the day would arrive. I told you in the beginning. On April 20th, 1973, after coming home from a party, the then 52-year-old Clarnell Elizabeth Strandberg woke up Ed with her staggering drunken arrival. It's like 2 a.m. at this point. She comes lumbering in the house, screaming. Because, oh yes, at this point, uh, Clarnell has also become a raging alcoholic. And that is like kind of snowballed slowly over the course of the story I've just told you. And her drunkenness, of course, only fueled to make her more violent and make her rages against Ed more profound. So, while sitting in her bed reading a book, she notices Ed pop his head into her room. Um, And he says, oh, I just wanted to see if you were home. Like, I thought I heard you come in. I just wanted to see if that was you. And she says to him, quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and talk all night now. And Ed replied, no. Good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep, and at approximately 4 a.m., he snuck back into her room and bludgeoned her with a claw hammer, then slit her throat with a penknife. And it gets worse. He then decapitated her and had sex with her severed head. Oh. He said there was no incest with his sisters. I did not promise there was no incest with his dead mother. Then he took the head and placed it on the living room mantle and used it as a dartboard. Ed stated that he, quote, put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour, then threw darts at it, and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and tried to put them down the kitchen garbage disposal. However, it could not break down the tough tissue that is your vocal folds. I don't need to know that. And it just ejected it all back into the sink. Oh. Yeah, which is a lot of evidence and very gross. Yeah. But later, Ed said of this that it, quote, seemed appropriate. As much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Ed then hid his mother's corpse in a closet, like the cat and the other girl, and then went to get a drink at a nearby bar. So just like you said before, now he has a secret. When he got home... He rather inexplicably invited his mother's best friend. So this is like the next morning, by the way. Obviously, this was, I don't know what this bar is that he went to after this. It was like like 5 a.m. Some bars are open all night. Yeah. So then he, when he gets home, he calls his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Sally Hallett. And she, he asks her to come over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. So I suppose the day has passed. It's very blurry what this day is. So I suppose he... Kills her. And I guess, you know what? It takes time to throw darts at a head and to do all of those things. So I guess if I'm piecing together this timeline, because there are no times on this. It's just a story, but there's no, like, timeline. I guess um, that evening, then, he went to the bar. And when he got back, he was like, come over and have dinner and watch a movie. So then when Sally gets there, Ed strangles her to death and says this is to create, like, a cover story that his mother and Sally had gone away on vacation together But he immediately abandons this. He subsequently puts Sally's corpse in the closet. Then he cleaned up the whole scene and left a note to the police that read, quote, approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, quote, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a, quote, lack of time. I got things to do. So, like, he obviously is saying, I killed these women. 
He, I guess that cover story, he just abandoned that shit real fast. Right. Unless he only thought that was buying him time, maybe? Maybe. And that, like, they would assume that for a little while before they went to check on her? It's very unclear. Afterwards, Ed fled the scene, and he drives nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, after taking caffeine pills to stay awake for the over-thousand-mile journey. Mm. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car, and he thought that he was the target of an active manhunt. So he was like, cops are on to me. They're chasing me. They weren't. <laughs> Go down like Bonnie and Clyde. Exactly. <laughs> After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Sally when he arrived in Pueblo, he found a phone booth and called the police. And we are back to where we began. When the Pueblo police arrived, he also confessed immediately to the murders of the six college students. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Ed said, quote, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. Or, you killed your mother and you were done. Yeah, that's <laughs> most likely. That's it. He should have just started. I wish he just there started are so there. Many, so many like true crime scholars that say the same thing. It's awful to say, but if he had just only killed his mother, he would have been done after that and never done anything else. Yeah. So after being brought back to Santa Cruz, Ed then took the police basically on a handheld tour of all the locations where he had dropped the bodies. He's like, I'm, I'll tell you everything. I'm done. I'm done. Here's what I did. But like I said, because they were all in nature, like there were pieces that they didn't find for quite a long right. time. But, but not for lack of trying and not for lack of provided information. And then he gave them an extremely elaborate blow-by-blow -blow confession, like every single thing. Ed was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7th, 1973. He was assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, attorney Jim Jackson. But due to his explicit and detailed confession, his lawyer's only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges. Ed tried twice to commit suicide while in custody. His trial went ahead on October 23rd, 1973. The court-appointed psychiatrist this time found Ed to be legally completely sane. On November 1st, Ed took the stand. He testified that he had killed the victims he wanted because he wanted them, quote, for myself, like possessions, and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could not have been committed by anyone of sound mind. His whole defense was, any sane person could never have done what I did. And I, I guess he kind of has a point, but sorry. He said that it was like he was two people trapped in one body, and when the killer personality took over, it was like he was blacking out, which is totally false in this case. Right. Other killers have said that, and maybe it's true of someone here or there. It's not true of Ed. He was very cognizant of everything he did, and he later says that. On November 8, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Ed sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting, as I said, death by torture. However, with the moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count, with these terms to be served concurrently, and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. And Ed is still alive today. While imprisoned, Ed has participated in a number of interviews, including a segment in the 1982 documentary, The Killing of America, I watched a documentary that I will link 
called Kemper on Kemper, Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer, which features a lot of Kemper's interviews. It features a lot of psychiatrists that have talked to him. It's very fascinating. You can also find his straight-up FBI interviews online, which, again, I will also link. There is a glut of Kemper talking about himself out in the world. It's not hard to find him talking about these things at all. His interviews have also contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers, which is the premise of Mindhunter. FBI profiler John Douglas described Ed Kemper as, quote, among the brightest prison inmates he interviewed and capable of, quote, rare insight for a violent criminal. Ed is forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and has stated that he participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. He said, quote, there's somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people, and wants to and rages inside and struggles with that feeling, or is so sure they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it starts. End quote. Ed has been denied parole a few times and refused parole a few times. So a couple times he was like, I don't even want to try. And a couple times they denied him. And um, a couple of the times that he was denied, it was presented by his defense that he was a model prisoner. And the judges every time said, I truly don't care how model of a prisoner he is at this point because his deeds are so heinous that none of that can possibly counteract what he has already done. Right. I mean, even just considering each girl... Absolutely. You know? And every one of those girls was somebody's daughter and somebody's mm-hmm. friend and somebody's granddaughter. And, and they, they were people. Right. I wish I had more information on them, but that, in this particular case, it's hard to be as victim-forward as we frequently are because it just isn't there. There is a ton about Ed because Ed is talking about Ed, but mm-hmm. there isn't as much on these girls, unfortunately. The next time Ed is up for parole is in 2024, and I just don't think it's going to happen for him. Ed continues, though, to be a model prisoner, just like always. He has even read 17 audiobooks for the blind and has received awards for his efforts. I've pasted, I've um, shared a picture before of him getting a plaque for reading to the blind. Mm. So if you want a known serial killer to read you Star Wars by George Lucas, like the novelizations, Rosary Murders, Flowers in the Attic, Web Between Worlds, Windmills of the Gods, Dune, Book Four. <gasps> I'm going to bed with this, Holly. I forgot you told me we were going to mention Dune. Your copy isn't necessarily Ed Kemper. Okay. There is a version of him reading it. No, no, no. no. I, think, I think mine is multiple people. He probably, you think he's doing one that's just one? I think it's just him. But okay. you might, you might want to check. We're going to check. <laughs> John, you're editing the podcast. Please check this out. There's also, if tomorrow comes, Petals in the Wind and a few more. It's 17 of them. Um, So if you want Ed Kemper to read you to bed, he can. Okay, so no Harry Potter because that's all Jim Dale. Yes. Okay. Just these specific ones. And I'm pretty sure it's it's – well, you know what? I don't know how well it's advertised because these are supposed to just be books for the blind. They're not audiobooks for the entertainment of audiobook purposes. They're specifically designed for blind people. Before we all got audiobooks. Interesting. Right. I wonder what they would do. He was like at the helm of a program where prisoners read to the blind. It was like a thing. Huh. Okay. Because again, he's in prison. He's putting on his like model prisoner hat and just doing the things he should go. He should do anyway. 
So that's that's Ed Kemper. Wow. Big Ed. Wow. So I just looked up photos of him because sure. I've seen I've seen them from like middle like middle-aged Ed. Sure. And then young Ed different. Yeah, and then obviously Ed on Mindhunter. And so young Ed, yes, very different. And what I would say is the main difference between him and like Ed or I'm sorry, um, like Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. even just in photos, like Ted always had like kind of crazy eyes. He sure did. And personality-wise, he was very narcissistic mm-hmm. also. So you can kind of see, like if you talk to him, you'd be like, okay, you're just this like charismatic guy that is like full of himself. But with Ed, he if he pulled up or if I met him at a bar, I would not be nervous. Nope, you would think and, this was a safe little puppy dog. And there's a... There's Not little, one he's photo huge. that I'm going to make you share. Okay, for sure. That he kind of look. he's like handsome. Mm-hmm. He's not ugly. The really young I picture? Yeah. I don't yeah. think the, I think the girls were a little, were kind of like, oh, he's he's kind of attractive. He's yeah. like a very tall man, but he, like attractive. He would have done fine. And if his mother didn't fuck him up in that regard, he would have done he fine. He could have been a basketball player for sure. Oh, like yeah. He, I was imagining him like big. But no. he is like he's like basketball player built. Yeah, like, and I I think he would have been like kind of comforting. Yeah, he to be definitely would have been. He reads like a big teddy bear of a dude, just like nerdy. Yeah, that's how. That's just the the instant picture that I get of him just looking at him, which was different from a lot of the other guys that we have talked about. Right, and even pictures of him. I mean, he like. The, the younger pictures, I agree. He's kind of good looking. And even the pictures of him after he's been in prison for years, he just looks like a guy. He doesn't look no. scary. There's one of him like kind of with like a goofy look on his face. Like, mm-hmm. And a lot know. of them he's laughing he's, with the cops. That's what I mean. Yeah. And it's nothing about even a laugh that he makes. Like whenever Ted Bundy did like a laugh, oh, God. it was you saw the evil. Ted Bundy's soul like would seep out of those crazy eyes yeah. and, and the the grandstanding he did. It was no, nuts. This guy's just like, no, I just like love to fuck dead women. You know, I just it's cool. Low key. Yeah. And Jeffrey Dahmer's the same. He was always like, you would look at him and be like, oh no, something's going on. Right. He like couldn't make eye contact with people and mm-hmm. his talks, his and while he could clear-headedly like talk to people when he was in jail. It, there was something else going right. on, man. And I urge you all to like follow the links and just even if you only watch 20 seconds of Ed talking, and I'll put it on our in our Facebook group. I'll put a video and I'll put it. I can't, I know I can't share videos to Instagram, but I will make them accessible to our the members of our Facebook group. Um, and we can talk about it there. But like it is staggering. Yeah. It truly is. I feel like I could sit down and have a conversation with that version of him and be perfectly happy to talk to him. Yeah. Not knowing what he did, of course. I don't want to hang out with someone who did the worst things in the world. Mm-mm. But if I didn't know, I would be unfazed by him. Right. Whereas, like, I feel like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer or Dennis Nilsson would have the capacity to make me very nervous. Yeah, I could, like, walk by them and get a whiff of their yeah. issues. <laughs> I mean, like, with Ted Bundy, that guy, he just has, like, callous hot boy vibes where you'd be like, oh, I don't even think I could, I can't hang with that. Until he gives you all of his attention. And then you're like, love me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, like, you also wouldn't leave your girlfriend with him. No way. Absolutely not. You'd leave all of your girlfriends with Ed Kemper. Yeah. You'd ask him to watch over them. Yeah, I'd be like, Ed, can you, like, walk them to the car? Thank you. Exactly. And then that guy is the one that's 
crazy. Huh. So anyway. Toast? Toast. Ooh, lordy. Wait. My. Please. Favorite Olsen twin movie. Yes, we got it. (laughs) (laughs) I love a callback so much. I think might be our lips are sealed. Oh, That's where they sealed. go. Yeah. <laughs> because of the song. Yeah, cool. And because uh, they go to Australia, and I like wanted to go there so bad. <gasps> Dingoes and kangaroos. That's where it got them mixed up <laughs> for sure. And then I also really liked Holiday in the Sun. That was okay. like a good one. Okay. Um. Yeah. All but, right. And then their last one, but yeah, I think our lips are sealed was like my favorite. I solved it. Yeah. I found it. We found the best one. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so toast. glad you remembered that. <laughs> Good job. I've only been staring at the, all their movies <laughs> this whole Leslie episode. Like really thinking about it. Of their movies. I have all thirty-five of them listed here. Oh God! But I love a callback more than anything in the world. So I'm so glad you brought that back yeah, around. No problem. When comics do it, it makes me so happy. I'm yes. always in my chair, like yes. <laughs> You're a genius. (laughs) Good job. That's you right now. Thanks. (laughs) So, uh, toast clearly to all of Ed's victims. Yep. I mean, there are quite a few of them. Jeez, this case is so, so much. Surely not his family. (laughs) No. Uh, To his grandfather, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he did give him a rifle. But he thought he was, like, helping the boy out. He did. He didn't know what was going on. So to to Grandpa, to Ed the First. Yeah. Do we have anyone else to toast this week? We sure do. <gasps> yes. Hillary Erblin. Ooh, Hillary. Yes, you. who is a best fiend. Ooh. You are a phenomenal, wonderful lady. Cheers. Yes. I believe her favorite Olsen twin movie okay. is probably a New York Minute. Yeah, you think That's so? That's their last one, it's yeah. It's like one of the few I've seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that you could just, They like, came in strong. You could really feel it. You could just sense yeah. that from her. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. So, Hillary, New York Minute. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> and if we trusted a friendly man with glasses and a collared shirt to get us safely home, we, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. <laughs> the chicken of